Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to Jeremy Scott Fitness Podcast Radio Show. Coming to you on this Friday, January the 26th, 2024. Hopefully it finds you staying safe and staying sweaty all at the same time. On today's episode, we are talking all things Bitcoin and beyond with my man, Stephen Cole. But before I jump into all that, real quick, just a reminder... We're about halfway through our 47-day transformation on the Jeremy Scott Fitness app. If you guys want to check it out, everything on the app for a week for free, jeremyscottfitness.app gets you guys access. If you want to pick up the 47-day, you guys can still get in with that. You'll own it for life. We update that bad boy every single year. So if you want to hop in, it's there for you. Otherwise, if you want access to, I believe we have over 13 now full programs ranging from 30 days to 10 weeks in length, all my weekly workouts, everything in between, full mobility flows, nutritional content. It's in there for a couple of pennies a day, but if you want to try it for free, jeremyscottfitness.app, you guys can sign up and rock with me 24-7-365. Real quick as well, shout out to our homies at Just Meats. Again, this is what we've been doing at our house for our weekly meals for probably the last almost four months now. Uh, if you guys want to check it out, we do have a discount code for you in the show notes here. You can always pop in the code Jeremy15 when you guys are at JustMeats.com. Again, we do a mix, uh, beef, chicken, pork. We work with these guys because, A, um, it's a family ranch, um, Sag Valley Ranch, family operated for about 175 years in Utah, grass-fed, no artificial colors, flavors, no bullshit. It's just what we like. It's easy. It's fast. They ship it to you. You can put it in the freezer, you can put it in the fridge, you guys can rock with it each and every day. We usually probably do it at our house four or five nights a week, and the weekends we'll do something a little bit different when we have time. But again, it's an easy way um, to get high-quality protein in it, and it tastes great. That's uh, kind of the benefit. And again, I'm, I'm not going to make you know Texas brisket uh, on my own, so these guys do it for me, and it's done when I get home ready to rock. and takes me all about maybe 10 to 15 minutes total at most. A lot of you guys, five minutes, and you got dinner done for the night, so... Shout out to our friends at Just Meats. You guys want a discount, look at the show notes for that. Otherwise, just pumping the code Jeremy15 when you guys are on the site. And you already know, shout out to my friends at AG1. Obviously, you guys know taking care of your health is not always easy, um, but it should at least be simple. Um, that's why for the past, I believe we're on year seven, um, I've been drinking AG1 every single day with no exceptions. I usually take a scoop or just a simple travel pack. I throw it in water, shake it, I slam it, and I'm good to go. Think of it as like your multivitamin on steroids, plus all the minerals you need, plus the prebiotics, plus the probiotics, um, all the antioxidants, about the equivalent to 10 to 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, you guys get in one simple scoop. So obviously you still got to eat real food. But what you can't eat in your diet, you guys can make up for here. Kind of just covers the gaps in what you're doing. So if you want to check it out, uh, the link will be in the show notes. Because right now, if you guys want to hook up some, we'll give you a year supply of free vitamin D and five free travel packs with order one. If you go to drinkag1.com slash Jeremy Scott, or if you want a free sample, 100% for free. No questions asked. Reach out to us, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, email, doesn't matter. We'll get you a free sample pack. We'll ship it right to your front door. You can try it. If you like it, then get hooked up with all the free stuff from there. Nobody else is doing that, but we're happy to do it to get it in your hands so you guys can try it before you make the investment in yourself. So hit me up for a free sample. Otherwise, drinkag1.com slash Jeremy Scott gets you guys all the free stuff today. Always a mouthful, dude. Um, All right. Stephen Cole, welcome, my man. Thank you. Appreciate you having me, Jeremy. Stoked to chat. So... 
Let's see here. Uh, you can go intro, a bio. You go back as far as you want, like kind of who you are, kind of what you do, um, and then we'll just uh, we'll connect the dots from there. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll give everybody the uh, the skinny on me. Um, so Stephen Cole have been involved in internet tech for quite a while now. Um, my background was originally computer science. I spent a decade in Silicon Valley, kind of working in the internet tech scene. Um, worked for big corporate enterprises. Worked for tiny startup companies. Um, worked for eBay, Intel, Dell, companies like that. Um, and then a couple had a couple journeys as an early employee at startups. My, uh, my focus now and for the last few years is on startup investing, um, as well as Bitcoin investing, Bitcoin education, and, and kind of venture capital at the intersection of internet technology and the Bitcoin ecosystem. So trying to stay up to my eyeballs in Bitcoin and, and startup companies all day. So like, how do you make your money on just angel investing, basically? Angel investing mostly, but um, the feedback loop there is pretty long because when you're investing into companies that early, it's typically a multi-year time frame before you see anything back from that, if you do ever see anything back from that. Um, and so those payouts are typically, you know, at least three to five years and sometimes as long as 10 years. So, um, you know, it is a lot of my personal capital, but I've been doing this for about six years now. And so have kind of started to, to see returns from that and the flywheel has begun. And my hope is to just continue that and, and be investing into early stage companies with my own capital and, and through funds for the coming years. Kind of like uh, you've seen the uh, like Super Pumped on uh, on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if I've seen Super Pumped. Yeah, it's the um, it's basically like the Uber story. Oh yeah, I read um, I read the book about Uber. I did not watch the Netflix. It's I mean I think it probably originally started on uh, maybe like Hulu or something, but it uh, it's legit. Yeah, it's good, yeah, it kind of just breaks down like I mean all the like some of these these guys who start these companies, it's not their first yep. go around. So it's like the Travis dude who started yep. it was, I think it was like his fifth or sixth startup. And then they got, uh, who is it? Bill Gurley, I think yep. came in and like just started to crop But You get to see kind of the behind the scenes of like, okay, I gave you this money. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we want from you. And just, uh, how these companies are built, but they're not profitable. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's a really interesting paradigm. Um, so venture capital and especially early stage venture capital like that is so different from other sectors of business, um, such as, you know, private equity, such as sort of, you know, brick and mortar cash flow style businesses. Um, it, to your point, it's it's a lot of, you know, don't be profitable. Don't give distributions or dividends to investors because you want to be aggressively reinvesting everything back into the business because you want to be growing at this insane pace and kind of blitz scaling, you know. And so the the goal in VC isn't really, you know, get a 3x return on your money, get a 5x return on your money. That's, you know, it's okay and it's nice, but really it's it's the space where 1000x returns on your money are possible, but you just incur an enormous amount of risk for doing that because you're trying to invest so early when everything is so new and unproven that umpteen different things can go wrong with it. Cuz the failure rate has to be pretty high, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a concept called the power law in um, in startup investing in VC, uh, which is pretty true. And there's and there's a book with that title, the power law. That's a fantastic read that kind of describes it, um, where basically the the vast majority of the returns that you end up making come from you know a, an extremely small percentage of your investments. So if you invest in you know 
10 companies, 30 companies, 50 companies. It's like one of those, three of those, four of those. That's going to dominate your return profile. So maybe you invest in 10 companies, nine of them fail and go to zero. Um, you know, hopefully not, hopefully more have returns than that, but it's possible that just one of the 10 will do so well and be so successful that that will more than make up for all the others that don't return any money. So people just kind of go into it knowing like, hey, I'm going to lose on nine out of 10 bets or, you know, 18 out of 20 bets. But if the two big ones hit, like I'm cool with it. That is a pretty typical mindset and approach to early stage investing. And like, how do you even start doing that? You're like, hey, I just, I saw somebody do it. I heard about it and this is what I want to get into. And I have a little bit of money and like, fuck it, I'll roll the dice? Yeah, um, there's kind of two pieces to that. So one is kind of boring and regulatory. Um, Technically, the SEC only allows accredited investors to invest into private companies like this, which basically means you need to have a certain net worth or a certain amount of income. The I think that regulation is bullshit. I wish that that would just go away. So and they, they do it basically so like, hey, you're not going to lose yeah. your it, what they say anyway. The spirit of it is, yeah, that um, it because it's such a high risk sector that they don't want people, you know, going in, not really understanding the risk that they're taking and getting burned and losing their life savings in these types of companies. But you can go to the casino. Yep, but you can go to the casino, you can buy lottery tickets, they'll happily let you do that stuff. So, unfortunate little double standard there, I wish. I I think in the days now of the internet, with so much access to information and the flow of information being so easy, that a lot of those regulations are less necessary than they were when they were put in place. You know, you can, it's a lot easier for people to educate themselves, use Google use AI and and just um, you know their ability to reach out in a market and understand the landscape is a lot more robust today than it was decades ago. So how did you then stumble onto like Bitcoin? Yeah, like how did that even come about at the crypto space? Obviously, you're in the tech and that kind of world, so I guess that's probably where the marriage happened. Yeah, I'll kind of give you my origin story on that. So I. Um, I moved to Silicon Valley in 2007, uh, right before everything crashed down, and um, it's where I started my tech career, and I was leading and managing engineering teams, and I kind of fell in love with startups out there, so I uh, joined a couple of early stage startups when it was you know less than 10 employees, and I experienced that ride a couple times from tiny early stage company to grinding it out, trying to build a successful product. And and then ultimately, both of those companies I worked for were acquired by larger enterprises. I was at a cloud computing company that was acquired by um, a larger enterprise called EMC. I was at an AI company in 2015 that was acquired by Intel. And so that gave me a combination of, you know, a little bit of personal capital to, to start doing my own investing into companies with. Um, but it also, I felt like I also kind of got this boot camp in startups through those two journeys. There is a lot that I learned from being an early stage employee about, you know, how to read between the lines on something about a team, something about a product strategy that just was not obvious to me at all. And I had to learn a lot of that the hard way along those journeys um, with 80 hour weeks and whatnot. And when I got to the end of those two rides, I kind of thought, you know, I feel like I just paid a lot of 
almost like tuition is kind of how I thought of it. Like yeah. I just educated myself a lot through those experiences. And now how can I apply some of those learnings from the investor side of the table? So that's what made me interested in getting into angel investing, getting into startup investing. My encounter with Bitcoin sort of happened a while ago, actually. So 2013 is when I got into Bitcoin. I was okay. living in San Francisco. I was working at a cloud computing startup. And there were a couple um, coworkers of mine who were just incredibly brilliant, and they would not shut up about this Bitcoin stuff. And we were all really busy with our day to day, so you know it took me a while to really you know overcome the inertia to actually do research and start looking into it. But 2013 is when I finally started doing that, sort of tumbling down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And at first, I was extremely skeptical. I thought, okay, well. You know, it's this internet money stuff, but like who controls it? Um, if it's just software, then like how does that really work? Can't people just change the rules to it? And the more that I found myself trying to poke holes skeptically in this concept, the, the more answers I found and the more my confidence just gradually grew and grew. And, and I would say that I went from being curious in 2013, buying a little bit in 2013, to, you know, a couple years later, I, I was just convinced that Bitcoin had this transformative potential and, and that it was a much bigger deal than most people in the world realized. And so I started allocating to it a lot more heavily in sort of 2014 to 2017. What, um, do you remember like your first like buy-in amounts? Uh, dollar amount. Um, I actually feel kind of lucky with that too, because Bitcoin's very volatile. I'm sure everybody listening to that this uh, knows that. And when I bought my first tiny bit of Bitcoin, I think the price was 800 bucks. And, okay. Uh, but then a few months after that, the price tanked and went down to like 200. And so that was from 800 to 200. It was this really quick forcing function for me to go. Okay, hang on. Like, did I get scammed? What what's going on here? Um, you know, should I bail on this or should I hold? And and I ended up, you know, kind of deciding to hold on um, and wasn't as confident in it then as I am now. But a lot of people, I think, need that volatility and that little bit of a gut check to to really test their confidence in it. You know. And, and I feel fortunate because I ended up getting that really early. It was like a few months after I bought my first one, it, it tanked. And so that inspired me to go and figure out, like, do I, do I keep holding this? Do I even go harder at it? Or am I missing something here? And so you did you acquire most of it between 2013 and 17? Or do you still kind of pick up pieces today? Still always picking up pieces. Um, in fact, Bitcoin, I, I basically come to view Bitcoin as my form of money, as my savings technology, if you will. And so most people probably think, you know, you've got dollars and you're deciding what to invest in and maybe I should invest in Bitcoin and I'll have like a Bitcoin investment. Where, where I'm at in it is Bitcoin is kind of my money. It is what I hold by default. So if anybody pays me for anything, immediately 100% of that goes into Bitcoin. If I have some acquisition, if I'm an investor in a startup and that startup gets acquired and I make money from that, immediately 100% of that goes into Bitcoin. No shit. Yeah. So yeah. like what what percentage of your like money is in Bitcoin? Like how much like liquid cash do you keep like 5%, 10%? 
basically the minimum amount of dollars that I need to kind of pay expenses, living expenses for, for really? the month. Yeah. Very minimal. Um, tiny sliver of my net worth is in dollars. I try to minimize my exposure to dollars because dollars lose money over time, lose value over time. Damn, um, man, and that, that's a lot, dude. And yeah, and that paradigm shift, you know, that did not happen overnight. Um, I think if if anybody listening to this is like, oh, wow, that sounds great. I should totally go do that. That's almost dangerous. Like I would not recommend going too hard at Bitcoin too soon. That That has been a journey for me. But I do truly believe that that is where we are headed as a society. I think that the way that I'm viewing Bitcoin and many others in the world are viewing this as money is just going to become more and more common in, in the next decade. And you say like you, you wouldn't do it for them just because the swings, right? Just because the swings. Yeah. I've had buddies who will get in and, you know, they buy and maybe they uh, put rather than like averaging in over time um, and scooping some up over a period of months, they'll like put a lump sum in all at once and maybe their confidence isn't quite there. Um, they're just doing it because they hope that it'll pop and they'll like double their money real quick. And if, if it goes the other direction on you and it goes down and tanks, which Bitcoin can do, um, then that leads to a you know scary place sometimes. And so they'll sell and then they feel burned by it and then they kind of have a bad taste in their mouth for Bitcoin. So the strategy I usually recommend to anybody thinking about getting started in this is dollar cost average. Pick whatever dollar amount works for your budget. Maybe that's 50 bucks a month. Maybe it's 5,000 bucks a month, something in between. But just like set that on cruise control and forget it. Buy a little bit of Bitcoin every week, every month, whatever frequency works for you. And then you're, you're very gradually getting exposure and you don't have to stress so much about these huge price swings in either direction that way. Yeah, because today it's, I guess, sitting just under 42,000 yeah. like a Bitcoin and you're buying at 800 bucks. Yeah. It's pretty was big. Pretty I was buying at 200 bucks at one point. That's a pretty big jump. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's definitely, you know, my, I think in percentage terms, Bitcoin is my best personal investment, um, probably by a wide margin. Um, but, you know, I think it's still early days. I think that in five years from now, 10 years from now, we will look at $42,000 Bitcoin and we'll go, holy shit, can you believe that it was that cheap? Can you believe you could get an entire Bitcoin for $42,000? Um, I think it's going to look just like hundred dollar bitcoin does that we're talking about now it we'll talk about that too like i for the people listening like the only reason i stumbled on this is because we had people who wanted to pay me in bitcoin through the cash app probably six years ago give or take yep. so i don't know what it was was it twelve thousand or fifteen thousand or some weird number like somewhere in between there but then it would go at one point it was like damn near 70 yep and then it was back down to like I don't know, 17 or 23 or some crazy shit. Like, it's wild to see, um, for sure. And it was a lot, admittedly, it was a lot to learn. Um, we'll talk about all the money stuff. But even for me, just like, do you keep it on the exchange? Do you take it off the exchange? Yeah. Do you go cold storage? We'll get into that stuff. But just for people who are listening, who are a little bit curious, who are like, yeah, Jeremy, that's all great. But like, what the fuck is Bitcoin? You know, <laughs> like, like, in, like, what are we talking? Like, because in your brain, when you hear it, like me, like a gorilla, you're like, oh, it's these coins. Yeah, but like no, like not. Yep. It's not like you don't get like a golden ticket that shows right. up. It's not like, like a gold coin, it's not like a gold bar. It's just digital for sure. Yeah. So to you, like, what is? How would you describe like what is 
a Bitcoin. Yep. Um, I think the Bitcoin is a digital commodity and it has properties that make it the strongest form of money that we've ever had access to. Um, the big breakthrough with Bitcoin, in my opinion, is so Bitcoin's 15 years old now. It was created in 2008, 2009, right after the great financial crisis. And the, the big breakthrough, even sort of computer science breakthrough, was it's the first time that we've been able to have a limited number of something digital. And I think that's why it's so hard to grok Bitcoin is because prior to Bitcoin, everything on the internet, everything on computers has been this digital abundance, right? Like it's very easy for computers to copy files. So if you have a picture on your phone and you send it to me, um, or if we're trading MP3 files or whatever, it's not really that you've got this thing and then you send it to me and I have it and therefore it's mine and you no longer have it. What's really happening is just, it's copies. It's copies, right? It's like a copy of the picture on your phone, a copy of the picture on my phone. Every time you visit a website, open an email, computers are just making copies of files. And so I think it's really hard for people to, um, to see or to believe that something on a computer screen can really be limited and can be scarce and can have a fixed supply. I know for me, like that was the part I was most skeptical of. I thought there, there's no way that Bitcoin's really limited. Um, and it you know, took a lot of research for me to become confident that it is actually limited. So there's a magic number of Bitcoin that will ever exist. That number is 21 million. And there can never, ever be more than that. And like what has been mined so far? Like 19 million, something like that? I think 18 something, but between 18 and 19, something like that. So of that total 21 million supply that can ever exist, will ever exist, um, about 18 million are out there in the world today in circulation held by, you know, who knows who. Um, Michael Saylor. Very, Michael Saylor to a large extent, um, you know, private individuals, businesses, corporations, nation states now, the whole gamut. Um, so it's come a long way. Um, but interestingly, the, there are also estimates of about 3 million Bitcoin are probably lost forever and inaccessible because people owned those Bitcoin. Maybe they had them on storage devices, computers, whatever, and they just they lost access to them. They lost the passwords. They threw the disks in the trash. Um, and early on in Bitcoin's history, there was no price, right? Like people were throwing thousands of these things around willy nilly to each other because it was less than a penny for a Bitcoin. Um, and so, wasn't it before, like now, if you lose your device, you can still get access, right? Yeah. The industry like has come lose, a long way. If I lose my ledger, but I have yeah. all my, the passwords, the keywords, yep. I can just get another one and I can still yes. get access. Yeah. But back in the day, no. Back in the day, no, and and even the best, even if like those things were technically possible, um, it wasn't quite as straightforward. Like there wasn't, you know, the set of instructions and the very clear step by step of like, oh, you really need to write this, you know, password thing yeah. down and put it somewhere safe. So it was just a bunch of people who were usually kind of technical hacker types that were, um, you know, using this and kind of just throwing them away because they never really thought that they could become valuable. But what's interesting is that ends up being a really good thing for Bitcoin holders because supply and demand, right? So scarcity, yeah. scarcity. And so 
really, even though the theoretical max of Bitcoin is 21 million, in practice, let's say 3 million of those are gone forever. So really, there's only more like, you know, 18, 19 million Bitcoin that will ever really exist. Every time Bitcoin are lost, it makes your Bitcoin and my Bitcoin more valuable. Well, it's just like if it was 110 degrees here in the summertime and 50 people came to the door here and I had three water bottles or I had 300 water bottles. You know what I'm saying? Like those yeah. three are way more valuable than the 300. Yep. Because it's the supply and demand. It's like the housing situation, how it has been and all the other shit, I guess, in theory. Yeah. Wasn't there a dude though, um, he bought like pizza with yeah. his Bitcoin, with <laughs> yeah. like two Bitcoin? <laughs> it's wild. That's a, a legendary story in the Bitcoin community. Um, a guy named Laszlo um, Hanyek, he uh, in 2010 paid 10,000 Bitcoin so it's not $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. It's oh, it was 10,000 10, Bitcoin. I thought it was like two. BTC Bro. for two Papa John's pizzas. Um, and that's it's so known and legendary because that really represents the first real time that Bitcoin... Was it like $4 million? Were, uh, today, I don't even know what the math would be. It's like $400 million. Yeah. Um, Fuck, dude. <laughs> like, how does he... Well, I mean, you don't know, though. But God, man, like... It wasn't there another dude like lost his in like a... Like a dump, like yep. a landfill. Yep. But he would like go look for it every day or some yeah, shit. Yeah, and he even paid like firms and other people to help him sift through the landfill to try to find this hard drive that he was pretty sure he had Bitcoin stored on because he was like running the number. He's like, all right, I think I got thousands of Bitcoin on this, so it could be hundreds of millions of bucks. So <sighs> maybe I should pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go try to find it. Um, that would be rough, dude. Yeah. Imagine yeah. like you lo like you lost. $50 million. <laughs> I know personally, I have friends who have experienced that kind of stuff. Um, it is very much the Wild West with this. And oh. it's it's a constant reminder to me of, you know, how scarce and how precious these things are. And like, if you have Bitcoin, you should think critically about how to keep them secure. And, you know, secure them as if they are worth 10 times, 100 times as much as they are right now. Because someday they could very well be so the people who are wondering like well who created bitcoin and how do i know this is bullshit or like isn't bullshit and how do i know it will stop at 21 million what stops it from going to mm -hmm. 22 million once it hits 21 they're like oh the joke's on you guys or whatever <laughs> you know yeah um bitcoin was created by its creation story is kind of wild so still to this day no one knows who created bitcoin that's what to me is always like trippy. They're like, oh, it's Satoshi. I'm like, who the, who the fuck is this? Is yep. it my next door neighbor? Like, is it some weird? Like, is like, that's the one part of it where it just seems weird to me. Where why would you not want to like, I don't know though. It the, Everything seems weird to me now at this point. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, why would you not want to take credit for it? And then how did we all of a sudden just like adopt it as like this? We, we believe like who, like if it's, you know, hodlers, you know, like whatever yep. they want to call people, like, you're the people who hold Bitcoin and it's, it's worth what you say it's worth, but so is my house. Mm -hmm. So is my car. So is the service I provide here. It, it really is no different than that. It's just, we believe in this thing that some fucking dude created that we don't know. And it lives in the internet space. Yeah, man, it, it's wild. Um, I'll touch on the Satoshi stuff and sort of like, you know, whether it's sketchy that we don't know who created it. Um, I think at first that does turn a lot of people off. They're like, I'm not investing in something if I if this like unknown person made it, and that seems like like a bad thing. But it's counterintuitive, but I actually think it is one of Bitcoin's biggest strengths. 
the fact that we do not know the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. So that's the name. Satoshi Nakamoto is the name that the person who created Bitcoin or maybe the group of people who created Bitcoin used. Um, they released it in 2008 just on an email list um, with a sort of academic style white paper attached to it that describes the protocol and how it all works. Um, the I think it's interesting because that that lack of a leader makes it a lot more resilient against all kinds of attacks and influences. So if you stack Bitcoin up next to other projects in the space, even other cryptocurrencies, most of those have creators. They have in like at least, you know, an influential smart developer who created it, like Ethereum, for example. Yeah, not know? to interrupt you. Do you own any other crypto? Other I do not. Bitcoin? I used to. Um, years ago, I probably owned 20 or 30 cryptocurrencies at one point. And I thought that it was a cryptocurrency future and there was going to be one coin for each use case. And if you like Kanye West, you're going to be buying Kanye coin. And if you, you know, whatever, to like support artists or whoever. You're like NFT shit? Kind yeah, of. kind of in line with, with that same spirit. Um, I've done a total 180 on that the more that I've uh, researched this space. I think that um, like now I only hold Bitcoin. I have no other cryptocurrencies. And I'm pretty skeptical of the long-term value and sticking power in any of the others. Really? Yeah. So like all we have is, again, because I went on the rabbit hole, something that I know too much. Um, Bitcoin and Ethereum mm-hmm. is the only two. Yep. But the ETH hasn't moved a yeah. lot. I mean, I think we we bought Ethereum just a handful, like at I don't know, eight hundred bucks or mm-hmm. seven hundred bucks. Now it's it was up to three Gs. Now it's like twenty five hundred maybe. Yeah. But I'm like, it hasn't. And again, I I understand what I understand, and then it's like gas fees and this, and I'm like, Jesus, dude, like I got to <laughs> stop. You know, because like, like I can learn enough to be dangerous, but it's like I don't live in the space. Yeah. So like if you were me, would you just be like, hey, dude, just take your ETH and just convert to Bitcoin and call it a day? Yep, 100%. I think no you'll shit. sleep easier at night, and I think the risk-reward is about it. so much better and so much easier with that. Um, a lot of the others, I, I think it's much more of the the casino type of mentality with the others where everybody's trying to pump their coin and convince everyone it's the, it's the hottest thing since sliced bread and therefore the value is going to, you know, go up hundred X in a year or whatever. And it's just this exhausting space of like, you always have to be figuring out what is a mania? Where am I being lied to? And, um, you know, if it really does pump, when am I going to sell and when am I going to get out of it? And Bitcoin for me is like, that's the only one where there is no sell. Like I think Bitcoin represents an upgrade. Like Bitcoin is the best form of money that we've ever had access to. It's better than dollars. It's better than gold, better than seashells. And it's, it's something where you don't really have to worry about selling because in my eyes, selling would be like downgrading. It's like, I'm not going from Bitcoin back to dollars, just like I'm not going from email back to the post office and i'm not going from my car back to a horse this is this is a transition phase in my eyes we are going from dollars to bitcoin or whatever government issued currency anyone in the world has we're going from all of those to bitcoin and i don't think we're ever going back and so rather than this game of how can i use all these cryptocurrencies or how can i use bitcoin to increase my dollar holdings I think the real name of the game is how do I navigate this transition to maximize my Bitcoin holdings when we get to the other side? Because Bitcoin's going to be the money. So, like, when you look at it, like, have you sold any of yours? 
Um, at various to buy, points, to it, buy stuff, to a little bit to buy stuff, um, to do investing in the startup companies. Um, we'll typically either sell Bitcoin or there are some companies that will offer collateralized loan products where you can kind of get dollars by posting collateral in Bitcoin. Um, you know, trade-offs and risks associated with each. But um, in general, I I don't part with Bitcoin as easily. But at some point, like that would be the goal, right? Because like yes. that's just what we do. So like, hey, I have three million bucks in Bitcoin. I'm just going to go buy this house. Potentially, um, but it, I think what's happening is interesting because the like it's still so early in Bitcoin, um, and the potential upside if this really does become global money is still so high that the price of everything in the world, all these other assets of houses, of land, of groceries, um, if you think about it, it's like the world is kind of being repriced in Bitcoin. And the longer that you wait, the longer that you can delay your gratification and, diamond hold, hands. and hold your Bitcoin and diamond hands it, the, the more you will be able to acquire in the future. Um, so it's almost like this delayed gratification test in some ways, which is fascinating. Because I know people who listen, they'll say, well, you know, this dude's buying it at 200 bucks. Easy for him to say, because the more yep. it goes up, the more he makes. You're telling me $40,000. And again, you don't have to buy, you just buy it in pieces, in the same way you buy stock at American Airlines or you do anything else. Like, no offense to anybody. Most of you listening, like, didn't really buy your house. Like, I'm not trying to be an asshole. But there's some, some ballers I know who did. Uh, but for most people, you went to the bank. And you are renting your house from the bank. You gave them a couple of bucks. And so you're fractionally buying your home over time. It's like rent to own, yeah. essentially. Um, this is the same way. Like you don't have to buy 40 G's worth. You buy five bucks here, 10 bucks here, whatever. The more you buy, the less the fees are typically on the money. Yeah. But that's, it, it's tough for, I, I'm just for people who listen, like I'm sure it's like, well, this all sounds crazy to me. But the more I, was around it, listened to it. Um, the Bitcoin Standard is probably the best book, yeah. would you say? Safety, Namas, yeah. Um, I would highly recommend that book to anyone listening. It helps you kind of detach your brain from what you think money is and, and where things are going to, like what it could be. I guess the question I have is like for skeptical people, and, and I was too at first, and I still think everything is, is made up. I just not believe that of everything, so I'm cool with doing different stuff. Who controls like the Bitcoin network? Like, yeah. Like, and I know people people will say, "Well, I don't know who created it. I don't know who controls the network." I'm like, "Would you feel more confident if the government controlled it?" Right. Like, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but dude, they fucked the money. Yeah, they absolutely have. Um, they fucked the money. They broke the money, and um, you know, I think that actually before I was into Bitcoin, I started getting into economics and like where money comes from, why we've used various forms of money for thousands of years. And I'm glad that that was the case because I feel like that helped prime me a little bit to appreciate some of what makes Bitcoin special than if I had just had the like internet tech side of things, but not really the economics and monetary history side of things. Um, I feel like both of those in combination make it a lot easier to appreciate some of what Bitcoin offers to people. Because all fiat money's failed. All fiat money's failed. Other you, than... Yeah. 
It's a dollar. If you look at a graph of you know what your dollars can buy over the last hundred years, that graph goes down ninety eight percent. If you've held dollars on a long time frame, you have lost ninety eight percent of the value. Ninety eight percent of the value, or the purchasing power. The purchasing power, and that I think that that word purchasing power is super important for anyone listening. That really gets at the root of some of this money stuff, where the the great, you know, almost scam, I, I think it's fair to characterize it as, with government-issued paper money or, or, you know, dollars are mostly digital nowadays. It's not even in paper form. Um, but what happens with those is you get paid, you put them in your account, and over time, they create more and more. They inflate the supply of dollars. Sometimes they do it slowly. Sometimes, like 2020, they'll do it with trillions of bucks at a time and do it very quickly. But what that does is it it quietly sucks value away from everybody who's holding that asset. So everybody who's holding dollars in a checking account or, or any form, um, you know, your your ten thousand bucks, your thousand bucks, it it buys a little bit less every year. Um, but we don't really think about it in those terms. We What we see and we experience is rising prices. And so we'll say to each other, wow, inflation is crazy. Like, look at how expensive eggs are at the grocery store. Look at how expensive, you know, healthcare and housing and all these things are getting. Um, what's really happening on like broad strokes is is not that those things are for some reason rising in value. It's that dollars, the measuring stick that we use, is decreasing in value. So if you are just out there holding dollars in a checking account, trying to get by and save, they've broken the money. You are you are having your value stolen from you if you are holding dollars. And I think Bitcoin is the first time that there's really been the ability for anyone out there in the world, any country, um, you know, there, there's no gatekeepers, there's no approval needed. You can participate in the Bitcoin network and hold Bitcoin on, you know, on a phone anonymously and have a way to defend yourself from that. That's never really been possible before. And that's the thing where when you start to understand like, well, if I can just pr- if printing, but it's not even printing anymore, it's just the Fed, first of all, the Fed is not federal. Let's just be crystal clear. It's just a bunch of fucking bankers and dudes who got together. Like, that's who controls your money. If anybody doesn't know this, this is not me making this up. You can go on Google and you can find it out. So we're all playing in a, a essentially like a, a clown show. Yep, rigged game. Yeah. And so my question was always, okay, when they print money or when we do QE, quantitative easing, which is basically just devaluing your money like crazy, where does that money go right away? Like, we're going to put it in a computer, but it's not like I get it. It's not like you, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, how much bullshit is that? Like, it just goes in like, oh, the system has it now. Like, well, I'm not getting it. Yeah, it's a lot of bullshit. Um, there are a couple different forms of QE. So the QE that, you know, they they really kicked into high gear in 2020, um, you know, it involved uh, kind of whimming trillions of dollars into existence. And then to your point, giving those dollars to corporations, to companies, to sort of whoever the government and the powers that be feel deserves it, needs a bailout, needs help, whatever. And, you know, maybe in some cases it's good and it's noble. And maybe in some cases it's just bankers lining the pockets of their buddies. That happens often. But they get access to that new money first. And that is bullshit. Because then the average working person out there, 
they they don't get to touch that money until later, until it's been spent, until it's circulated through the system. And when it circulates through the system, then everybody has time to adjust and realize that the supply of dollars has increased. And so prices go up. And by the time the average person gets that new money, prices have already risen. And so they're not getting any benefit from it. The benefit goes to the people who are closest to the money printer, the central banks, the primary banks, the corporations that are friendly with those primary banks. They're the ones who really, really benefit from that. And I think it's a it's an insidious, quiet form of wealth redistribution. They are effectively taking money away from all the people just trying to get by and trying to save and stealing some of that value for themselves. Well, they force you to invest because yeah. if you don't, you're fucked. It's basically counterfeiting. I mean, if you, yeah. if you think about it, like, and I know it sounds crazy and people are like, oh, you're, con-. no, this is like real, it's just happening in real time. And yeah. we're just too busy in life and we put up with it because it's just the system that we have and we're in it, which I guess leads me to the inflation where people feel like, oh, you know, inflation, you know, let's get it down to two or 3% um, per year based on whatever metrics they want to share, which are bullshit, by the way. All the people tell me inflation was 5% or 6% or 7% the last couple of years. You're you're fucking crazy. Like it's it's double that, dude. Easily on every level. Like if you just look at the prices of stuff, like it's not even remotely close. My point is that doesn't need to happen. We just accepted like, oh, well, things just go up in you know by three percent every year. I'm like, well, why do they? Yeah, they don't need to. Totally. We have normalized rising prices, and tech. We're getting better at tech every day. Prices should go down. Everything should be like. TVs that you see at Costco where you're like blown away. You're like, holy shit, I can buy this fancy TV this year. It's like, like 300 bucks. Yeah, yeah 300 bucks. Um, all of everything in the world could and should be like that, but they broke the money. Um, and it, it has not always been that way. Like the, it's been that way for as long as we've been alive and people listening to this have mostly been alive. And so we're just conditioned not to really question it. But for most of history, that was not the case. For most of history, societies used sound money standards, the gold standard, you know, the silver standard in some places before that. And you were working, doing whatever your craft is, trying to be amazing at it, and you got paid, and you simply held the money. And the money was good, and it protected its value. If you rewind like 100 years, you know, it's not like people had this, oh, you know, you're not doing a 60-40 portfolio with your 401k and your mutual funds and blah, blah, blah. And we've, we've gotten to this weird place to where all of this financial complexity and these financial gymnastics have just become expected of us. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're a dentist, you're a carpenter, you're a plumber, but of course you have to like be financially savvy too and be an expert in finance. And that's messed up. It shouldn't be that way. It should simply be that the money is good. And you can be amazing at whatever you want to be amazing at, create value in the world, get paid, hold the money, and the money protects its value. But in 1971, they broke that. 1971 is the year that they removed the dollar from the gold standard. Nixon, right? Nixon, the yeah. Nixon shock. Yeah. Um, and ever since then, we've been able to print as many dollars as we want. And if you look at charts of all kinds of different facets of society since 1971, the quality of things has just started to degrade. Because the money is the foundation of everything. It's how we 
coordinate action. It's how we like figure out where there's opportunity and decide what to do, what to buy, what to invest in, what to build. And when that is broken and people can't use value and price signals to coordinate, everything gets messed up. And usually it manifests as hardworking everyday people getting having to bear the brunt of it. And the people who are on top get richer, they benefit from it. And and I think Bitcoin is the first real time that there's been a technology that stands a chance of leveling that playing field. Well, if you look at it, like I always use like Detroit as an example, like you could work at Ford in 1975 and probably have a, two kids and maybe your wife worked or maybe she didn't or maybe the husband worked or the wife did or whatever. I'm like, but you could just live yep. and you could support a family and have your life. And now it's like, if you make a hundred grand, depending on where you live, you might be damn near homeless, dude. Yep. Like that's fucked up. Like we have friends who like work for real companies, Microsoft, making like what I would consider real money, and they can barely like buy a condo. Yep. And I'm like, that's not the the gap becomes too big 100%. when they do this because your the salaries don't move with yeah. the inflation. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if inflation really is seven percent, which is bullshit, let's say it was fifteen. That would mean at your job, dude, of you making 200K, you got to make 230 the next year. Exactly. Most of you guys are never going to see an increase like that. Yeah. Like in just your base salary. Like when the average person in America makes like 50 grand a year or something. Yep. Like that's not, that, that means you're fucked. It's tragic. Yeah. It's the biggest theft in human history, in my opinion, is central banking and centralized money without being backed by anything. What's been happening since 1971, I really do view it as the sort of one of the greatest human tragedies. It's just very difficult for us to quantify and to think about that way because we're, it's all we've ever known. We can't even fathom what life would be like if we really got to keep the fruits of our labor. Well, it's weird because like I, I always kind of believed in the system. Like, to like enough, you know, like, eh, like this is bullshit, but we'll roll with it. Like, hey, I'm going to pay taxes. Who knows where the fucking money's going? Like, I don't get a spreadsheet. I don't get to know. And like, oh, by the way, figure it out on your own. Have your CPA help you and just send us money, which whatever, dude. I, I got all that. But then I'm like, okay, well, if I just, you know, own my real estate, if I, you know, have these traditional investments over time, the money will double essentially every seven years to 10 years, depending on the interest rate. So I retire, I have like, you know, $15 million, whatever the number may be. I'm like, I was kind of down with that. Um, and I thought that was kind of the path. I'm like, I have no debts. This just makes sense. And then like 2020 happened. And it was like, I said this to my wife too, like, all the COVID shit and whatever, that was the biggest dumpster fire ever. Fuck all that stuff. Yep. I go, the first thing I said to her, I go, they fucked it, dude. I'm like, they're sending all these people money. They're sending all these guys checks. We're not making anything. And I go, it's like 20 years happened in two years. Like, that's yeah. what it felt like to me. It may be not that far. Maybe it's like 10 years happened in two years. And what I mean is the prices of things jumped that much in two years. So, like, I always said this. What we've done here with our money and our businesses is not genius. We worked super hard, but got lucky with timing. If I was 10 years younger, they fucked me, in my opinion. Now I have access yep. to technology and AI and more resources than I had because there was no social media. So I understand that. But in terms of just barrier for entry, if you didn't own real estate, if you didn't own any like investments that would increase in value in 2020, they screwed you so hard. Yeah. 
like you know, like to a level like I feel is the most criminal thing. Because if I was 28 years old right now or 30 years old, I'd be like, man, I feel like I kind of like it's all the you know, hey kid, these uh, the young kids, hey, don't buy avocado toast and an eight dollar coffee. You could go buy a house. It's like no, dude, these guys were in eighth fucking grade. <laughs> like when they when they could have bought a house that was affordable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I can't imagine like if my first home would be like, hey, you're gonna move to Scottsdale. Buy this starter house for seven hundred thousand dollars, and you're twenty seven years old. Yep, like that's fucking wild, dude. It's heartbreaking stuff. Um, you know, it's just this crazy barrier to entry. Um, for and, and it's kind of messed up too because the the people who are okay in in that situation, like the people who are lucky enough to have been in the market for a while and own assets, you know, they the value of their assets goes up. Um, and so there's almost this incentive where if you're on the asset owner side of things, you kind of have an incentive to benefit from the system and like keep quiet and not point out the problems with it because like boomers. It, it benefits you. Yeah, yeah. Because they have a shit ton of the money right now. Yes, yes. Um, the, you know, the generation or just the incredibly wealthy, the top, you know, 0.1%, they accrue all of the benefits from the current system at the expense of others in the US and and especially other individuals abroad who are that that's one interesting element to touch on in it too is you know dollars aren't just used domestically in the US they're used globally by a lot of different countries um, some countries you know have multiple kind of currencies that are recognized as legal tender at the national level um, and there are some out there that they don't have their own currency they're using US dollars and so when we print trillions of dollars here in America to do stuff, maybe people could argue, oh, well, you know, those social programs that we're funding are, they're totally worth it, right? Like we're, it's worth the cost of inflation because we're paying for all these things that benefit us. But okay, like maybe I'm skeptical that there's actually the value in it for us that they claim that there is. But I guarantee you that the holders of dollars abroad they are not benefiting from it, right? Like they're not in America. They're not getting any of the social services that we're funding with those programs. And so, you know, it's hard to quantify because there there is no real protocol to to for dollars where you can go and look at the supply abroad. But the estimates are like 70% of the dollars in the world exist outside of the US. And so effectively, if we print, you know, a trillion bucks here at home to do stuff, we are stealing value from people abroad who are just trying to save. And they get zero benefit from that. The citizens of El Salvador, you know, who were using dollars as their national currency before they adopted Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Um, you know, they just get hosed by that. We're just stealing, siphoning value away from their savings. And do you think like that's, does that eventually happen where the dollar is not the reserve currency anymore? I think so. Um, you know, it sounds like crazy talk right now, but I think eventually Bitcoin is going to be the reserve currency. Now, for people listening, like, why would the, I'm not saying like, why would they let it happen, but essentially like, why would the US government be like, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but they do own Bitcoin too, but yeah. they won't have any, I guess, like, we can go down 800 rabbit holes here. <laughs> like, do they end up creating their own bullshit central bank digital currency, which I do think would be fucking terrible. Yes, I agree. Um, it would be terrible. The acronym for that central bank digital currency is CBDC. And and that's, I think, worth emphasizing to listeners, because if you see that term out there, CBDC, 
I would encourage you to just think of that as something evil and something dangerous and something that we should avoid. And you should encourage your senator, your representative to push back against. Because CBDCs are, I, I do think that they will be attempted by various countries. Some countries are already building CBDC technology. And what that would effectively do is just centralize the power over the money to an even greater extent than it ever has been. It's been pretty centralized for all of our life, but that would be this crazy dystopian end game of everybody in the country is banking with the Federal Reserve, and any time that you do something that they don't approve of, you say something they don't like, you behave in a way that they don't encourage, then they can censor your payment, they can seize your funds, they can shut down your account. It would be complete and utter control over the money by the people at the top of society. And I do think that some countries will aggressively pursue those agendas. I hope not. Um, it'd be lovely if countries just kind of see, oh, wow, like Bitcoin is strong money and we're not going to win if we try to fight it. So let's embrace it. Let's be first to try to adopt it. And clever countries like El Salvador are doing exactly that today. But, you know, the U.S. benefits the most from the current system and the status quo. So it would be unfortunate if the US or some other large nation tried to really push back against Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that they can affect the speed at which Bitcoin adoption happens. They can speed it up, they can slow it down. You know, if the, if the US government announced tomorrow that they're stacking Bitcoin as a reserve asset the same way that they've stacked gold in Fort Knox, or they used to anyway, yeah. Um, then yeah, that makes the transition to Bitcoin as money happen faster. Um, and maybe if they say tomorrow Bitcoin is illegal and we throw you in jail if you use it, then that makes it happen more slowly. But I don't think they can stop it. I think Bitcoin is more powerful than the government. I think that it is It is like, uh, there, there's an excellent quote from the Bitcoin standard actually that illustrates this. Um, it, it's along the lines of, you know, Bitcoin's not going to be adopted like the iPhone because it's cool and it's neat new technology. It's going to be adopted like gunpowder where if you, if you do not adopt it and you just ignore it or you try to fight against it, then your enemies will adopt it and you will be vulnerable because you are using a weaker form of money. And so I think the, the game theory is really such that it, it becomes dangerous on a long enough timeline and at a certain scale not to use Bitcoin. So do you think like they do create a digital currency and keep like dollar, the dollar system as it is, and they have like both? Or do they just try to do just a... Because to me, I'm like, there's so many things that would go away if you didn't actually have any paper money. And I'm sure at some point, like that will happen. But like every kid who gets paid to do like chores. Now I know like I'm, I saw an old school, like you can Venmo your kids and do whatever <laughs> the fuck. But there is people here. This is Arizona. Like, I got dudes here that run, like, stone companies and run roofing companies and landscape companies. And, like, no offense, these dudes don't do Venmo. Yep. Like, yep. it's just straight. And they don't pay their dudes in Venmo. I don't think they have <laughs> bank accounts. They don't have IDs and shit. It's like, how does that work then? Like, you would just take away all the money? Like, the paper money would just disappear? Or do you think that doesn't happen? Like, they keep that legacy kind of system, but then they try to make this digital bullshit. The when is really hard, like the timeline and predicting when all this occurs is is tough. Um, but but eventually, I do think paper money goes away, and I think we will look back and laugh at the days when people would hold paper money, 
that anyone could print more of, um, you know, and there's not any kind of inherent value to it or anything like that. Um, and, and we will laugh at the days when people held their value in something that others could just increase the supply of. Um, I really like thinking about it as an upgrade. I think a framework for this that's kind of cool is, you know, we've, we've upgraded throughout history from various forms of money. At one point in certain regions, seashells were money. And then over time, as technology got better and, you know, boats could sail and could navigate to, to those islands and to those regions, then other forms of money were able to um, come into contact. And, and when that happens, forms of money compete. And so you would have these sailors from, you know, the, the larger empires that would go out there with, you know, silver coins and things like that to these places where seashells were money. And they could easily go and get all these seashells and they could land in this, you know, on this beach. And to, to the locals, they were wealthy because they had, the, you know, a mountain of seashells. Um, and it turns out seashells are not as strong a money as silver coins and silver coins are not as strong a money as gold coins because of, for many different reasons, but largely the scarcity aspect. There's a lot more silver in the world. Um, it's a lot easier to mine it from the earth and pull it from the ground. And so, um, and so gold kind of ends up being a stronger store of value in that way. And, it's it's interesting to try to put yourself in in the shoes of you know someone using seashells as money and then some person shows up like suddenly this silver coin stuff enters your world and your first inclination is probably hmm you know maybe i like seashells are money but these shiny things are neat maybe i can use these coins to increase my seashell holdings and i think that's kind of what we're in right now with bitcoin and dollars we're so used to dollars being money that everyone's intuition is, hmm, I wonder if there's a way that I can use this Bitcoin stuff to increase my holdings of dollars. But that's a very short-sighted view, in my opinion. I think when you zoom out, it is competition. And the, you know, the dollar is not scarce. It will only continue to bleed value as they print more of it, as they have done for over 100 years. Um, and no one can ever print more Bitcoin, no matter what. And, and so all those strengths that money like, like gold has, Bitcoin has them, but just to a greater degree. Bitcoin is 100x better than gold. It is uh, more scarce than gold. It is easier to divide up into small amounts for payments than gold. You can zap it through the internet digitally to someone else in a fraction of a second. Um, you know, you cannot do any of that with gold. And so when you just stack it up and look at fundamentals of how divisible is it? How transportable is it? How scarce is it? Um, Bitcoin just knocks it out of the park relative to any competitor. Well, because we like we own it all, right? Like, so we have obviously paper dollars, and we do own gold too. And then obviously we have Bitcoin and Ethereum. But when I look at the gold, like, what the fuck am I going to do with it? You know, what I'm saying like I'm not against having it. Like, we bought it as like a store of value. I understand that, and it can go up over time. But how can I actually use it? Yeah. Like, am I going to take a gold bar somewhere? Like, no, I don't know if anybody accepts that. Yeah, they, they don't really in practice today. And, you know, I like on one hand, I respect gold for history. Like as a student of history, it's been the strongest form of money that we've had access to in various places for a long time. And so, you know, I don't want to discount that. 
but I do believe that um, that Bitcoin just has all of its strengths, but so much more that um, that when those two are in competition, Bitcoin is just a far superior store of value. And, and if you look at the market capitalization of those assets, and by that I just mean like the total amount of wealth that's stored in each of those. Um, and it, it, like if someone can find a bar chart of this online, it's it's staggering to look at, right? So, so Bitcoin is a, a $700 billion asset roughly today. There's 700 billion worth of dollar value kind of secured by the Bitcoin network that investors have, have put there. And in gold, it's 15, 14 or 15 trillion worth of value is stored in gold today. Um, and so let's pretend that Bitcoin fails miserably for payments. Let's pretend you can never go and buy a coffee in it. You can never go and like buy lunch in it or pay taxes in it or do any of that stuff. All it is is a better store of value um, and I think that's a pretty conservative base case. That is still more than a 13x upside from where it is today, just from being a better store of value than gold. And I don't, and I do believe it will eat payments and it will eat all those other use cases. So you know, I I would have a much more aggressive long-term view than just that base case. But that, as a conservative analysis, I think is very thought-provoking. But there is places where people do transact in Bitcoin and use it to buy shit. Yeah, um, there are. There's uh, a few regions around the world where it's becoming um, very common, especially down in El Salvador. So the country of El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. So if you go to McDonald's in San Salvador, like you can pay with Bitcoin. Um, I visited down there a few months after they made that announcement and realized I forgot my toothpaste, uh, walked down the street to a little tienda market on the corner in a, in a town um, called El Zante. And the vendor was like, do you want to pay in Bitcoin? And I said, yeah. And I bought my toothpaste. Um, that though, What do you like to do with your like, Coinbase or something? Or like some kind of app or what? Uh, there are digital wallets. There's a bunch of different kind of brands um, and, and companies out there building wallet solutions. But yeah, it's effectively a mobile app. Um, there's a bunch for Android. There's a bunch for iPhone. Um, they all come with different, you know, trade-offs. Some are for more technical people. Some are for, um, you know, maybe less tech-savvy users. But it's cool to see how much of an ecosystem has evolved there because there are solutions that really make it possible for people to be successful with Bitcoin, even if they are not necessarily tech-savvy. Yeah, because um, that was the the part to, to learn off the top. It was like, okay, I'm not going to keep it on. Well, I got a dude here. He has a bunch. He just keeps it on. He keeps it at Coinbase. Like, he don't give a shit. He's like, <laughs> he goes, I don't want to lose it. And he's like, they're not going to lose it for me. Like, that's kind of his belief. I guess it's like, he thinks of it as like a Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. I guess, which I trust them about as much as I trust, you know what I'm saying? But I'm like, <laughs> I just pulled mine off because I'm like, let me just buy a ledger, figure it out. And, yeah, good. And that's what we have it on. I think that like in, in some cases it is fine or maybe even the right thing for someone to leave their Bitcoin with a custodian like Coinbase, like Fidelity now is a Bitcoin custodian um, and there are a bunch of other options out there. In some cases, maybe that's appropriate. If someone's brand new to this, if they're like, you know, kind of scared of tech and, and they're worried that they're going to do something wrong and lose them, absolutely, like leave them with a custodian. But over time, as you learn more and you become more comfortable, the option exists for you to take custody of the underlying asset yourself and not need to trust a bank, not need to trust a custodian or, or anyone. And you can really 
take full control to the extent that you want over this stuff. And that's what I think is neat because that it's just like that option isn't really there with any of these other things. If you want to do that with your stocks or your bonds or your gold or whatever else, like it's not as practical in some cases to do so. And, and so Bitcoin really makes it possible to have this control over your wealth that, that nothing else in the market offers. So for somebody who's like, hey, maybe I want to jump into it, you would just say, hey, check out one of the exchanges, you know, hook up your bank account, takes like two days, maybe, give yep. or take. And then you can let it sit there or you can put it on to like, if you want to talk about cold storage or then things like that, just because I know this is a lot for, for people who are like, I don't, this seems so overwhelming, Jeremy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. It, at first, maybe, but once you can see it, like, on your phone, like, the Ledger app does pop up and it updates in real time, even though your money's, it's there, it's there, but it's not there. Like, and that's a weird way to think about it, right? Yeah. Because you can see it. Yeah, it's, in both cases, you know, it's like, it's a number on a screen. And so I think that, you know, it takes a while to appreciate that, okay, in one case, you know, this number on the screen is Bitcoin. And so it is this decentralized protocol that no one controls and that no one can change the rules to. Um, and in the other case, if the numbers on your screen are dollars in a bank account, then, you know, there's still numbers on a screen, but a small group of people and one company have complete control over that. Um, they can shut down your account or, they can print more dollars and steal the value from the ones that you hold, effectively changing the rules of the system. You just don't see it go down. Yeah, that's that's exactly. the difference where, like, if I can actually, can you pull, mo- like, when it's on Ledger, can you just, can you ch- slang money right from there? No. Uh, you can. Yeah, you could. Uh, I wouldn't really recommend send, that. Send, receive, swap. I can send it. Who yeah. Can I send it to you can send, like, if you wanted to transfer all of your Bitcoin from Ledger to somewhere else, even some other hardware wallet uh, brand, then, you know, that's easy. If you, in theory, you it's even possible to, like, make small payments from your Ledger or from your hardware wallet, but I wouldn't really recommend that. I, w- I would say if you're going to control your own keys to your Bitcoin, then some hardware wallet device, like a Ledger, like a Trezor, like a passport um, is another good one um, then then that's fantastic because you know that gives you ultimate control over it but if you're looking to spend Bitcoin day to day like my barber takes Bitcoin um, here in Phoenix no sure. so yeah and so I'll pay him in Bitcoin um, but I'm not like touching my cold storage I'm not touching hardware wallets to do that I kind of have like you know a separate much smaller stash in a mobile wallet on a phone. Um, that you use for day-to-day payments. And I think that model works reasonably well. Okay, yeah, because like I'm just looking at, like, I'll keep, like, some on the exchange. Like, I'll just keep a couple thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. it doesn't matter. And then once it gets, like, enough, I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'll, I feel like I, I feel it's safer if I move it. But I'll hook up. I'll plug in my shit, and I'll do the little QR codes, and I'll make sure the numbers kind of all match up or whatever you do. Yeah. Um, well, one thing, too, that might be interesting to, to touch on a little bit is... Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and how those compare. Because I feel like that is one thing that most people probably assume that when I'm saying Bitcoin is great, maybe what they're actually hearing is like cryptocurrencies are cool and all this crypto stuff is great and you should go and invest in crypto. But I actually make a big distinction between those. Um, I think crypto is mostly noise and it doesn't have much long-term substance or sticking power. 
Um, and I think Bitcoin is transformative and it can completely change the world. And, and so, you know, I don't hold any others like Ethereum even. I was pretty excited about Ethereum when it launched. I bought some shortly after the ICO, um, you know, in 2015, 2016. But over the years, I, I think those other coins like Ethereum and all of the tens of thousands of others, they're much more socially centralized than, than they want you to realize that than they want you to believe yeah um, and what i mean by that is you know even though it's still open source software and everybody can see it i think that there's a in most cases a small group of people who are influential enough that they can change the rules of the system if if they want to and that's actually been demonstrated a few times in ethereum's history so there was this uh, incident in 2016 where a hacker stole 150 million dollars worth of ethereum and what, was, what happened afterwards was fascinating because um, the Ethereum community, Vitalik Buterin, who created Ethereum and some of the developers, what they chose to do is rewrite history of the blockchain. They, they undid that transaction where the hacker stole money from this company um, in order to undo that spend and you know, make it so that that it didn't happen. Evil did. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want to sound overly critical. Like everybody's human. And I think that they had good intentions and they're trying, they like felt like it was an injustice. And so they're trying to do the right thing. But that demonstrated to me that this system is centralized enough that a small group of people will say to do something. And it kind of has this culture of let's all go along with it. Let's all follow the leader. And so Bitcoin is unique amongst all of the thousands of other cryptocurrencies because we don't know who created it. So there is no single person who can be blackmailed, bribed, influenced, pressured to try to like exert control over this thing and to try to change the rules. Um, no one knows how many Ethereum will ever exist. Even the creator, they have no idea. Like what the code says right now is one thing, but they have changed the rules of that at least five times in the last nine years that Ethereum's been around. So they've they can change the supply rules of how many of these tokens ever exist. And so even when these coins claim to have limits, it's usually like, yeah, if you look at the software today, that's the number, but they can just change it. And they can convince everyone in the ecosystem to follow them because they're the creators, they're the, the corporation that controls it or whatever the case may be. Um, Bitcoin stands apart. 21 million is non-negotiable and no one can ever change that number under any circumstances. So I think it's absolutely unique. And you think there's no way? No way. No. And I know, and I know for everyone listening that that sounds crazy. Yeah. So I don't like I, it did to me at first too. Um, the answer as to why it can't be changed comes down to a very clever set of incentives that are just built throughout the system between all of the different parties in Bitcoin, the the Bitcoin miners, the Bitcoin holders, the you know the Bitcoin developers, there are checks and balances along the way that effectively prevent anyone from exerting influence over it. And so I think it's the only one that's decentralized enough to really disrupt a system like money. Um, if you're going to challenge the U.S. dollar, or you're going to challenge some of these powerful institutions. You have to be resistant to change. And Bitcoin is the only one that I see as capable of doing that. 
And what about like the people who, if they say like, well, this is kind of like the internet, like this is Bitcoin's like ass Jeeves. And maybe there's like a Google yeah. version that comes out. Like, what if there's like a better version created? Like, does Bitcoin become worthless or is it like, and, and by better, I just mean like, like mm -hmm. a, it'd be like a similar thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, it is a free market. And so, you know, there's competition happening every day for that. You know, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies and all of them are trying to dethrone Bitcoin and have been for the last 15 years. And Every day since Bitcoin was created, it's been on top. There's been more money and mindshare and, and all of that in Bitcoin. And so the longer that it wins, the, the harder it is to, to dethrone, so to speak, because of the network effects of everybody who's participating in the ecosystem. The, the network effects of you know an app or a product are pretty strong but the network effects of something like money are just incredible and and so i think it really has more of of an advantage and a lead than than a lot of people would expect that it does um, I, I think waiting around for the next bitcoin will be a lot like waiting around for the next internet yeah. so like do you think chances of it going to zero no, I I don't really think that it could go to zero unless, you know, the world gets hit by an asteroid and everything goes to zero and we all go to zero. <laughs> well, and that's kind of my, because of just because of the adoption yeah. is there's too many people who like say, hey, we would still keep it and we would still use it. So it would never go to nothing. Yeah. The, the sort of, you know, smiling tongue in cheek response uh, to like, can Bitcoin go to zero is no, because if it goes to a penny, I personally will buy every single one. And, and I won't sell it for 42000 and I won't sell it for 400000 because I think the value is much, much higher than, than that. And there are more and more people every day who share that view and who have that conviction. And so anytime that someone gets spooked and holds their Bitcoin and loses confidence in it, if Elon Musk loses confidence in Bitcoin and sells it, he is selling it to people like Michael Saylor, um, you know, who have incredible conviction and do not plan to sell for decades, if ever. Well, and I know people, they always play, well, you know, if the world goes sideways, I'm like, dude, if the world goes sideways and the internet's not working, like, we're not really worried about money. Like, yeah. we're banging it out with assault rifles in the streets, dude. Like, we're on some fucking yeah. Last of Us, you know, Mad Max shit. It's like bullets and garden seeds yeah, at that, that point. Yeah, that's how I look. And that's kind of like my thing with, uh, like, with gold, too. Like, it's cool, but I'm like, I just don't see how it's, like, has a a real world application now. Because everything we do is digital shit. Yep. Like, my phone's going off here the whole time. I got a guy on Venmo talking shit and doing everything else. I'm like, <laughs> like... That's where we live. Like, it's not a... No one's ever been like, hey, man, shoot me some gold. Yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't seem like that'd be a thing. So I, I get that part of it. I guess with the um, with the ETFs, like, that recently just, like, came out, does the ETF stuff help or kind of hurt the Bitcoin case? Because I see things on, on both ends of it. And to me, it's like, I would rather just buy it myself than... Yeah try to buy it through an ETF, it seems. But again, I'm not everybody else. And I don't know everybody's situation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, within the last few weeks, uh, the, a lot of headlines when ex the first exchange-traded funds for Bitcoin were approved in the U.S. So there's nine of them. Um, this basically makes it really easy for 
people in with access to the financial system to get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, you touched on an important distinction, though. You're, if you buy Bitcoin through one of these ETF products, through your brokerage, you are not you don't actually own Bitcoin. There is no way that you can like withdraw those Bitcoin to your own wallet and take physical possession of them and not have to trust someone else. But um, it's like a gold ETF, right? Yeah, it's like a gold ETF. Um, you don't actually get gold. Exactly. Um, you effectively have an IOU on paper that says that you own some amount of gold. Um, and so I do think it's an enormous positive. I'm thrilled that the ETFs are in the market now because it allows a lot of pools of capital that just haven't been able um, for policy reasons to touch this stuff yet to finally do so. Um, and I think it it validates it psychologically too. Like I have, you know, extended family who I've been kind of nudging on Bitcoin for, you know, eight years or whatever now. And, um, you know, I'll tell them all about it. And they're kind of like, oh, these new companies like you know, Coinbase, Swan, whatever, like I'm, I'm not familiar with them. I don't know those names. And so there's a lot of inertia to overcome. And then I remember the first time that the Bitcoin price was like on the in the corner of the TV on CNBC. And that family member called me and he was like, hey, uh, actually, this Bitcoin stuff seems kind of interesting. Like, can I and that drove it home for me. It's like a lot of us are just so used to deciding what to trust based on the institutions we already know and trust. And so seeing names like BlackRock and Fidelity and VanEck and some of these finance giants stamp Bitcoin with this um, you know, approval effectively, I think it, it makes it a lot more palatable to, to some people. And, and the know, ETFs just do it for they just want the fees. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, it's lucrative for them. They are killing it on fees. Um, the the spot Bitcoin ETFs that were approved recently smashed the records on um, ETF products for like how much volume they traded in the first forty eight hours. Just demolished all the the previous records. And like, then what do you think when you hear some of the dudes like take the hard stance like against it, like like Buffett and like Jamie Dimon stuff, yeah. or like Bitcoin Peter Schiff. Yeah, yeah. It, P Peter Schiff is like the most. But does he just do that? Like, is that just his shtick? Like, he's a gold guy, so it's like it is what it is. But or is that like really what they believe? And then they're gonna just they're gonna die on that sword. And then like for I guess for him, he's been against Bitcoin since day one. Like when it gets to a hundred thousand, do you still say that? Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like when does it turn? Or do they just or why did they say that? Like I wonder. Like do they really believe it, or is there a different agenda behind it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of some of those factors. In some cases, it's just ego, and they've kind of built a brand publicly for so long of being anti-Bitcoin sure. that it'd be really hard for... It's easier for them to dig their heels into the ground um, than it is to say, oh, actually, maybe this thing does have some, some substance to it. Yeah. Um, and then in some cases, I think maybe it's strategic where they're trying to play 4d chess you know if if jamie Dimon says bitcoin is garbage maybe the price will you know go down a little bit and maybe jp morgan can quietly accumulate That's bitcoin I mean. at a yeah. better price um and then a year later they'll announce oh hey by the way we're like doing this bitcoin product and he'll just change his tune because didn't black didn't like blackrock say that yeah like wasn't larry fink like hey this is dog shit and yes. now they're like we're selling it. And now they're the largest Bitcoin ETF provider. So it's funny how, uh, how yeah. over time people's opinions of this can change. Yeah, it's a tough... It's like anything, man. Like finance, it's complicated. It's just a lot of stuff to navigate through. I guess I'd ask the question, like, 
when does it get to like, you know, a hundred K or 200 K or 500 K? I got a guy, I'll send you his stuff on Instagram. He's a finance dude. I'm going to butcher his name. So let me look at it quick. But when I first, my wife sent me his stuff, like, I think it was when, uh, whatever was Silicon Valley bank, Uh like was eating shit. Yeah. And he was, um, he just basically broke it down in a really simple way of what would happen. And we actually have a dude here that runs a trucking company, and uh, a lot of his vendors would use those guys for their banking, and they were fucked. And like the whole, yeah. how that worked. It's wild. Yeah. But this is the dude. And now it's like all he does, Who's dude, Sony? Okay. is post about Bitcoin. Like damn near every fucking post. I think he and I might be connected on Twitter. And he looks familiar. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it used to be nothing. Like he never mentioned Bitcoin. <laughs> and now it's just like he'll every fucking post. And it's very uh detailed. And it was interesting to kind of see him. He's a financial advisor. So mm-hmm. it's like I'm sure he has the traditional, you know, hey, put your money in this. Again, because we do too. Like we started off like when I was a young kid, here's your Roth IRA. And then it was like we created a SEP because mm-hmm. you're here, you work for yourself. We Then we have those individual accounts where it's just like outside of retirement, like we do that. Um, and I used to think like that was what it is. And we still contribute to them. There's tax benefits to doing some of that stuff for sure. business. But um, it just doesn't seem like that's – when when this dude will talk, he's like, you buy a house with a Bitcoin. Like, that, like yeah. when they start saying crazy shit like that, I'm like, that just seems t- like too gnarly to me. Yeah, I go, but I wasn't around when this was two hundred dollars, and to see you go from two hundred to forty thousand, and then to go from forty thousand to like a million, so you're in ten years. This is this is a Bitcoin is a million dollars. Yep. Like, wouldn't that be wild? I think it could happen a lot faster than that. Um, million dollar Bitcoin, I think, could be. You know, I'll preface all that by saying I'm no short term trader, and I've been very publicly wrong about price predictions, you know, before. So, but who, e- like, everything with a grain of salt. But, um, but I think a million dollars per Bitcoin in the next five years is completely in play. Um, there are some people who are called Michael Saylor. I think the other day said, you know, three hundred fifty thousand dollars per Bitcoin doesn't feel unreasonable for this year, twenty twenty four. Dude, that's wild, bro. And it's wild, but... But Kathy tell- Woods says wild shit, too. She does. She does. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what is also wild is, like, very genuinely, when I got into Bitcoin and it was $800, $200, you know, those types of price levels, the one thing that I was sure of at the time was that I was kind of late to the game and that I had missed the boat. Because when I looked at the charts, the price before, I was like, man, just a year ago, it was 30 bucks. It was $6, like, two years before that. And so I'm paying $200 for one Bitcoin. That's insane. Um, and I just think it's going to be like that all the way up. I think that right now, $42,000 Bitcoin is going to look insanely cheap in just a few years, the same way that those levels do today. And it's always, we're just psychologically conditioned for like looking back at the the price chart and we don't really have this way to conceptualize what can happen in the future. But um, you know, I think when it's $500,000 per Bitcoin, I'm going to be telling people we're still relatively early. Yeah, you should still be buying Bitcoin. And I'm going to be buying Bitcoin if, with, if and when it's $500,000. I'm going to be buying when it's a million. I don't think the opportunity to trade dollars for Bitcoin is going to exist forever. I think that's actually kind of a limited time opportunity. If this is really a transition phase, eventually people are going to have to get Bitcoin the same way they get dollars. You're born and you don't have any money. You have to go and like 
work and create some value in the world and then people decide to pay you. And the opportunity to like give people this monopoly money dollar stuff and convince them to, to part with their Bitcoin, I don't think that lasts long, perhaps. So, and that's the hard part where people are like, well, if there's if it's only with people with Bitcoin, what about the people who don't have it? And it's like, well, it's kind of like the people who have money and the people who don't have money. Exactly. And when you when I'm thinking of it, you're and maybe this is just me, like mentally, it's like, well, it's just it's this one thing. Like, no, it's just it's fractions of it. So yeah. if it becomes super valuable, somebody would part with some of their stuff for what, just like they do with dollars. Yeah. It's just like imagine your Bitcoin is like a one dollar, and the things you're buying are just pennies. Totally. Yeah. There's still a price. Like as much as someone loves Bitcoin, me or anyone else, like I want to eat and I want to have a comfy place to sleep. And so like there is absolutely a price at which people are going to live life and pay people for goods and services to, you know, enhance their human experience. So I think a lot of those arguments that you'll see mainstream economists like Paul Krugman or whoever use and say, oh, like, you know, a fixed supply of money doesn't work. You need inflation. Inflation is necessary because it stimulates the, the economy and it gets the money flowing. And I think that's all just garbage. I think it's not true. Um, I think that a fixed supply of money really just ensures that people have control over over their money. There There's no way for them to kind of be, be stolen from or taken advantage or have the rules manipulated against them. And so... If Bitcoin becomes money someday instead of dollars, like, yes, you know, it's the money and there will be some people who have more and some people who have less. But I just think that the playing field is much more fair. Um, it's, it's not like today. Some people have a lot of dollars and some people have fewer dollars. But there's also this ability for people to just conjure up dollars out of nothing and kind of cheat the game and cheat the system. And that is what Bitcoin crushes, that Bitcoin fixes that. So it's a much more fair level playing field, I think. Well, because it doesn't devalue what you have. So if you have one Bitcoin worth a million dollars, you have a million dollars. Yeah, or it's not even measured. I mean, it's it's hard to it's even like because, grok, because it we won't dollarize, even be dollar. Yeah. We dollarize everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'll be like... The, the joke, it's almost a meme in the Bitcoin community, but it's like, you know, today Bitcoin is, the price of Bitcoin is $42,000, but long term, one BTC is one BTC because it's, it's like what, what's, it's like what's asking um, the, the price of dollars today. You know, like what is the price of a dollar today? It's like, it is a dollar. It's a dollar, yeah. It's, you think about how many goods and services you can buy. You think about being able to buy a coffee for that or whatever, and that's, the potential end game of this is like you have Bitcoin and you're not even dollars aren't even in the picture. You're just thinking about like, okay, well I can buy my Bitcoin is protecting my value. And so I can buy more groceries than I could. Groceries don't get expensive on a Bitcoin standard. They get cheaper. Houses get cheaper on a Bitcoin stand. Everything that we can build and we can do gets cheaper if you are using good money. Which just makes way too much sense for people, obviously. <laughs> um, I'll get you out of here in a minute. What um, advice for people who like, maybe they're listening and they're like, "Well, you know, maybe I'll check it out," like, but they're super apprehensive or nervous about it. What mm -hmm. my like when I obviously we were just getting it, you know, early on or early for me anyway, and then I would start picking up stuff. And, and when I would do it, would I would dollar cost average, just be like, "Hey, I'll just do fifty bucks a week," and then I would just do bigger chunks as time went on, and then. I just don't really like to pay the fees, so I'll just buy yeah. more at, at one time. But what I went to my finance dude, and I'm like, hey, man, 
what do you know about Bitcoin? And they're like, we don't know shit. You know, <laughs> um, they do now. Like they know more now than they did, but still, like, I don't buy it through him. They don't trade it. It's just something that they're aware of. He said to me, he's like, hey man, like if you what you do with this other money, it doesn't matter. He's like, so what we do here is like, if this is what we do, he's like, you'll be fine. He's like, but if you want to take $50,000, you want to light on fire. He's like, or you want to buy Bitcoin with it or a car. He's like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's not going to affect what this plan is over here. And when I thought of it that way, I'm like, well, okay. Like to me, it was like, well, if it's money I was going to lose, it's like, fuck it. Like if I was going to go to the casino or if I was going to go somewhere else, I'm like, that's how I treated it at first. Yeah. I'm like, if this went down to nothing, would it change my life? Yep. And the answer was like, well, no, it won't. Like it would suck. Now I'm like, I don't want to lose it all, but it wouldn't like cripple me. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good place for most people. Yeah. Um, you know, put in an amount to start with that is not going to stress you out. Um, and, and I think there's kind of two recommendations that are important there. One, this will sound counterintuitive because I know every it's like, don't invest in something if you don't understand it. Um, and, and usually, like, absolutely, that's that's true. But just to be but, honest, like, who do you understand when you get your printout of your 401k? Yeah. Or your, your my, I'll be honest with you, like, my finance guy's right down the street. I got a bunch of them that work here. I hang around with a lot of people who know about money. I look at that shit, and I'm like, I get it for the most part, but... I don't know what's in half this shit. Yeah, man. Like, yeah. Oh, is BlackRock fun this? I'm like, what does that even mean, dude? Totally. Like, totally. I don't understand. Like, I know what it is. Like, I know American Airlines. Like, I own part of American Airlines, kind of. Yep. But it just goes up and down based on, like, bullshit opinions. I don't really grasp it. Yeah. And I don't think this is that much different. And I think that this stuff is so new and seems so foreign that it's really easy for people to get intimidated by it and to build it up like it builds up in your mind and you're like oh i want to invest in bitcoin but i don't know if the time's right and it's just, it feels like a big thing and like a big deal and i would encourage people to just punch through that like this stuff is so straightforward now and some of these companies make it so quick to get going like if you're listening to this at whatever in the afternoon a few hours later that evening like just you can have five dollars worth of bitcoin so go and like get off of zero immediately. Put in five dot. Don't buy a coffee tonight. Don't buy a whatever. Um, you know, just take five bucks tonight. Put it in Bitcoin, and then you are off of zero. And you're like, that's a psychological barrier that you've just overcome. And and so I I say get that out of the way quickly because it's not as big of a deal. It's not as hard as people build it up in their head. Um, but then you know maybe don't go all in too soon. Dollar cost average. Find there are a bunch of companies out there. Um, one called Swan Bitcoin. Full disclosure, I'm I'm a small investor in Swan Bitcoin, but um, you know they're they're a Bitcoin on ramp that provides education and the ability to link up your checking account automate the the regular buys of bitcoin every week every month whatever dollar amount works for you you can kind of set it and forget it and i think that that's a great approach because then you can really like put it in a budget and know that you're gonna you know be okay and um and just kind of let it run and you're gradually accumulating this over time and then for everybody else, like, okay, hey, I put a couple bucks in. I just can let it sit there on the exchange because it doesn't matter until I feel comfortable learning about, like, 
Yeah. A different then, wallet type. Yeah. But then you're off of zero. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, all in. You don't, I don't want people to hear me at the beginning of our discussion saying like, I'm all in on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is my money and feel like that has to be the starting point. You know, like start small, buy a little bit of this stuff and just, you know, go from there. And it's not, a, not as hard to get going as it probably feels. Because think about that, like you can take a huge swing in a day, right? Like when Bitcoin's at 70 Gs and then goes down to like 30, mm-hmm. you yeah. see a monster jump. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That's a psychological mind fuck for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like a that, would be, that would be cool because I'm like, oh man, I have all this money. And then it's like, oh no, I don't. Yeah. There, there are headlines that are hilarious to look back on from the mainstream media over the years where um, they declare Bitcoin dead after it has these big crashes. And you can look back at the different price levels. There, there's a website that like collects these, and I think it's called BitcoinObituaries.com. Um, but you can go and you can see like at $500 per Bitcoin, there was a headline that's like, oh, well, I guess that's the end of Bitcoin then because it had crashed from 1000 down to 500 No oh, shit. And then 20000 down to 3000 Then it's like, RIP Bitcoin, time to move on. And, and so it's funny, you know, it's always like the crashes and that volatility just scare people off. And the media loves to just say, oh, see this things, you, you were wrong if you bought Bitcoin. But if you zoom out and you just look at a long time frame, it's just, it goes up and to the right over time. Well, it's no different than like your retirement accounts. Like if you check that shit every day, like what am I yeah. check the S&P and the Dow every day? Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you're not retiring tomorrow. You're not going to spend. So what is it? It goes up, it goes down. It's like, you just yep. roll with it for yeah. the most part. Uh, anything we missed here? Man, I don't think so. Um, you, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, I think we like implicitly said that, but I didn't say it in exactly those words. Um, you don't need to invest $42,000 today to no. buy a whole Bitcoin. What's you the min- can, is the minimum? Five bucks? Ten yeah. bucks? No, nah, it's in theory, there's not really a minimum. You, you can even s- divide Bitcoin up so finely that you can divide them into less than a penny's worth of value. Um, so really it's just whatever policy of the company you're buying through sets their minimum at is what determines it. But it's usually on the order of, you know, a couple bucks, something along those lines. Yeah, let me try, I'm, I'm trying right now, actually. <laughs> What's two? Upgrading to better money yeah, in dude, real you, time. You can, you can, two bucks is the minimum. All right. On, on Coinbase. Two bucks, everyone. Go dude, start there. Dude, but two bucks, you're paying a buck in fees. Oh uh, yeah, so, that's so not if you ideal. do hold not on. ideal. If you do five, what if you do five bucks? Five bucks. Yeah. So what I would, I mean, I'm just a, like a fees person. <laughs> so like, if you figure that out, like if I buy nine bucks, yeah, the fee's still a dollar. Yeah. So and, like, and which app is this on? On, Coin, on Coinbase. Coinbase. Okay. Yeah. yeah at ten bucks, it's still a dollar. Yeah. So you could just keep. I would do that at least. At ten, at eleven bucks, it goes up. Okay. So okay. At gotcha. Ten, so there's at like ten, a threshold. At, yeah. Yeah. At ten dollars, you pay a dollar, so you keep nine bucks. Fucking do that, dude. Well, fuck, dude. Do like 50. Yeah. The, the other thing, too, is um, the marketing. So, like, Coinbase is, you know, publicly traded, big company. Everybody's probably heard of them at least. Um, I would actually encourage people to go, if you're going to buy Bitcoin, go to other companies that are much more Bitcoin focused. Um, Coinbase is like, you can buy Bitcoin through them, but they really tend to emphasize in their marketing, all these other cryptocurrencies. Oh, dude. And so if you sell, yeah, like if I send my 90 year old aunt to Coinbase, then the next time she logs in after she buys Bitcoin, she's going to get a pop-up saying, congrats, you bought Bitcoin. Wouldn't it be cool if you traded it for this hot cryptocurrency of the week? And 
And I think that that marketing is just, it's not helpful. It encourages this casino sort of short-term thinking and trading mentality. Because like so, a watch list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cardano, Polkadot, yeah. Chain, what the fuck is Polkadot? And so like, so go to companies like uh, swanbitcoin.com is fantastic. Um, River Financial is another good one. Um, they take a much more long-term Bitcoin-centric approach. And their educational material on this, if anybody wants to learn more at either of those companies, is is great. Um, so be be careful when it comes to companies slinging crypto out there. Well, yeah, because it's kind of like we had a dude in here... Um he has a he has a fund and he was on like Robinhood. Yeah. Like he, oh yeah. He didn't he doesn't own any nothing in uh, in the market. It's all real estate shit. And uh, he was like, yeah, I did like five thousand trades like in one year because it just it's it feels like it's fake. Yeah. I will say that because I was never like a a Venmo like PayPal person. We use our CMS systems for business, but it comes in and it goes out. So I never did a lot of that. And now I'm like, oh, I can just put in numbers on here and I can buy five hundred bucks worth and and it doesn't feel real. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's kind of the dangerous part where it's like you can start buying all kinds of shit. For sure. And you can burn yourself sometimes, like playing with fire on some of those platforms. So say the two again. Uh, uh, Swan Bitcoin yep. is one. And then River Financial um, is another great one. Um, yeah, those two, I think, are just solid recommendations for anyone wanting to get going. Nice, dude. Um, and where can these guys uh, find you at? Like social media, any of that stuff? Uh, Low-key on most social media, but um, Twitter is where I'm most public. I mostly it's called, tweet. It's called X, dude. Oh, you're right. I got to get with the times. Dude, who would, who, <laughs> nobody calls it X, man. It's fucking Twitter Yeah, it's forever. Twitter forever to me. Um, I'm on there. I mostly tweet about Bitcoin content. Um, my, my account is um, S-then-C, S-T-H-E-N-C. Boom, dude. I dig it, man. This is helpful. Um, yeah, this is a blast for me to too. chat about. Um, yeah, you guys, uh, I'll put all his stuff in the show notes. If you guys have questions, uh, obviously just hit us up, reach out. Uh, I'm happy to share any info with you guys. Uh, anything else, you guys holler at me. Again, if you guys want to jump in the app, free week on me, jeremyscottfitness.app. Our friends at Just Meets are hooking you guys up with money off anything you guys want to order put in the code jeremy 15 at the checkout and then again if you guys do want a free sample of ag1 obviously hit me up i'm happy to send it right to your front door otherwise drink ag1.com slash jeremy scott gets you guys a year supply of free vitamin d and five free travel packs with order number one i appreciate it dude this is super helpful thank Man, you me, me too i appreciate the opportunity this is a lot of fun uh if you guys are on spotify drop out a five star you can leave a comment on this episode we appreciate it same thing for apple Podcasts. don't be a lazy ass Just drop out a five star leave a comment please share it we appreciate it and until next time you guys eat well train hard be nice to people and please keep doing shit you love with people you enjoy because your life is too short not to i'll talk to you guys soon peace